0: Well, good morning. I do want to urge you to make sure you visit the table out in the lobby and pick up some invitations. I want to encourage you to be thinking about whose name needs to be associated with the invitations you pick up to pray for that person, put it in their hands, and give them a warm invitation to come and hear the good news of the gospel, celebrate the incarnation of Christ along with us as the choir always ministers to us in such a marvelous way in the Christmas concerts. Also wanted to make sure that you notice that in your bulletin there is an announcement um, that, um, that uh, most of you already know this, but David Kanaversky has accepted uh, the position as senior associate, so we're thrilled and just rejoicing uh, that Pastor David is going to be coming to serve along with us and uh, to minister here at Calvary as our senior associate pastor. He's going to be starting on a part-time basis in December, and and uh, Pastor uh, Jeff Whitaker is going to be working closely with him uh, as he gets acquainted uh, with the ministry and with Calvary. And uh, then after his son graduates uh, from high school in December, uh, then the family will move up here here in January and um, he will uh, then begin full-time uh, after the new year. So uh, be on the lookout for Pastor David during the month of December and uh, and then be on the lookout for the whole family uh, beginning after the new year and let's make sure we really uh, welcome them warmly uh, to Calvary and um, we're excited about that. Well, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 43 and As you're turning there, I just want to remind you that this chapter and the things that we're going to be talking about this morning was addressed to ancient Israel. And so the wonderful promises given in this chapter were first given to them. And that's important to remember. As we discussed last week, because we have been grafted in To this messianic hope by grace through faith. And because the New Testament says that what was written in the Old Testament was written for our instruction and encouragement, we can draw application for ourselves from this amazing portion of Scripture. But we need to remember that it was written first to ancient Israel. Now, last week we studied three comforting passages in chapters 41 through 42. And this week that theme of divine comfort is going to continue. As chapter 43 proclaims to us the loyal love of God in verses 1 through 7, the eternal exclusivity of God in verses 8 through 13, the covenant faithfulness of God in verses 14 through 21, and the sovereign grace of God in verses 22 through 28. And so that's kind of the broad outline for our message, but I want to tell you up front we're going to spend about 95% of our time. This morning, on just that first one, the loyal love of God. So let's look at the loyal love of God as so marvelously proclaimed in verses 1 through 7. Isaiah 43, verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord, your Creator, O Jacob, and He who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place. Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth." Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. This is the loyal love of God. As we look at this passage, I first want to point out that there's only one command to us in this passage, and that is the command, do not fear. That command is given in verse 1, and then it is repeated a second time, in verse 5. But I want to draw your attention to the word that follows that phrase. It says, do not fear, and then the next word is for I have redeemed you. Same thing in verse 5. Do not fear, for I am with you do not fear is the command and then the word for introduces an explanation it indicates that what follows are reasons why there is no need for Israel to fear And as I said earlier, because New Testament believers have been grafted into the Messianic hope and since what was written in the Old Testament was written for our instruction and our encouragement and since each of the concepts in these seven verses are applied to New Testament believers in the New Testament, you and I can draw comfort from this marvelous passage as well. In fact, this Amazing text gives me 16 reasons I should not fear. 16 reasons I should not fear. And this is what we're going to spend 95% of our time this morning on. 16 reasons why you should not fear if you are a believer in Christ. 16 reasons why I should not fear. Number one, I should not fear because I am redeemed. I should not fear because I am redeemed. Look at verse 1. Do not fear for I have redeemed you. Now to redeem someone means to pay the price necessary to release them from bondage and give them freedom. I have been redeemed. I am no longer a slave to sin and death because Christ paid the price to free me. And as John 8, 36 says, if the Son sets you free, then you are free indeed. You are truly free. That's why we sung, you have broken every chain. We are free indeed. I should not fear because I am redeemed. But let me pause and say that if you are not born again, if you have never repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if you have not been redeemed, then you have every reason to fear. To fear not only all of the, the dark things of this cursed world, but also the judgment to come and eternal punishment in hell. If you're not redeemed, you have every reason to fear, but if you are redeemed, you have no reason to fear. The Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and of knowledge. If you're not redeemed this morning, let your fear of death and the right fear of eternal judgment drive you to the cross of Christ where you will find redemption and you will find forgiveness. But for all born-again believers, we should not fear because we have been redeemed Second, I should not fear because I have been called by name. Do not fear for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. God called Abraham by name. He called Moses by name. He called David by name. He called the apostles by name. He called Saul by name and The New Testament teaches that he calls each of us by name. John chapter 10 verse 3. He calls his own sheep by name. Have you heard the call of God? Sent out through the proclamation of Scripture. When you hear the verse that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do you hear through the Spirit of God that invitation to say, Believe and receive the gift of eternal life? Have you been called by name? If so, you have no reason to fear. Third, I should not fear because I belong to God. Do not fear for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. I belong to God. When God redeemed me from my slavery to sin, he didn't just release me from my slavery to sin and then leave me out on my own as an orphan. No, he brought me into his family as an adopted son. He redeemed me, he called me my name, and he made me his very own. Listen to how the New Testament describes this in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 16. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We have been redeemed, called by name, and we now belong to God. Fourth, I should not fear because God will never leave me God will never leave me verse 2 says when you pass through the waters I will be with you you know in this life we pass through some really dark stormy seas we pass through suffering and trial and like the disciples who were in that boat on the sea of Galilee we can begin to fear that we're going to sink and we cry out saying Lord don't you even care I want to read to you from Mark 4, verses 35 through through 40. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 40. If you remember, Jesus tells the disciples to get in a boat and cross to the other side. And so it says, leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? I mean, think about what happened here. Jesus tells them, get in a boat and go to the other side. They obey him they do what God tells them to do and they're going where he told them to go and he sends them right into a storm and now the boat is filling up and he's asleep and so they wake him up they're like don't you even care that we're about to die I'm sure that you have felt that way I think we all have verse 39 what did Jesus do says he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea peace be still and the wind died down and it became perfectly calm and he said to them why are you afraid how is it that you have no faith I should not fear because God will never leave me When we pass through dark and stormy seas, we need to remember that the Lord is with us. You may feel that he's asleep on the cushion, but he is there. And at the right time, he will stand and he will say to the storms, peace be still. He will never leave us or forsake us. He cares, and even the wind and the waves obey him. So no matter how stormy the seas are and no matter how much your boat is filling up and no matter how tempted you are to be afraid, you need to remember who's in the boat with you. Is that boat gonna sink with Jesus in it? Your life is not gonna sink when Christ is in you. Number five, I should not fear because temptations will not overwhelm me. Temptations won't overwhelm me verse 2 says, when you pass through the rivers, they will not overflow you. And, you know, the concept of a river with its powerful current reminds me of the pull of temptation. And I'm from Colorado, so I would go whitewater rafting and there's been times where I've got tossed overboard and, and I've been now in the current of the river and kind of getting ragdolled and swept downstream and no matter how hard you swim against the current, you're helpless and even if the boat comes there, it's really hard to pull yourself out on the boat. In fact, it's almost impossible. You need someone to reach down and lift you up. When you pass through the rivers, they will not overflow you. God says, I'm not going to allow you to be overflow, over, over, overpowered. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you except what's common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to bear, but along with the temptation, he will provide a way of escape so that you can endure it. When you pass through the rivers, they will not overflow you. So if you're being swept away, reach out to the hand and God will pull you onto the raft. Number six, I should not fear because God will protect me. He will protect and he will preserve me. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. Now, like the first two phrases in verse 2. This phrase uses powerful illustrative language to tell us that God will protect and preserve us until the number of days ordained for us have been completed. And he calls us home to heaven. Psalm 139 says, all the days ordained for you have been written in God's book before there was even one of them. God has already ordained the length of your life and no tragedy, no sickness or nothing else can shorten your life nor can you by worrying add to your life your lifespan has already been ordained by God so you are invulnerable until your death day and you need not worry worry is worthless it doesn't add to your life it only saps your quality of life along the journey God is going to protect and preserve you until the days ordained for you come to an end. So just trust God with the length of your days. Now while this language is illustrative, it is very notable to note that long after this was written, when the exiles had been taken to Babylon, there were three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refused to bow down to a, a, a statue and because of that they were thrown by Nebuchadnezzar into the fiery furnace and then Nebuchadnezzar looks into the furnace and says didn't we throw three men into the furnace I see four men walking around and one of them has the appearance of the son of God God literally had them walk through the fire and they were not scorched And the flame did not burn them. Why? Because he says, I am with you. God proved to the exiles in Babylon that when he wills, he can literally nullify the power of the flames. And so we can trust him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego told the king, look, the God whom we serve is able to protect us from the flames. How did they know that? They read it right here. And they said but even if he does not even if he sovereignly chooses to let us die as martyrs we're not going to bow down to your idol. We're not going to bow down to your idol. Throughout the centuries there's been times where God has marvelously rescued and there's been times where God has sovereignly allowed people to earn the martyr's crown. We can be sure that we are safe in his hands. Seventh I should not fear because Yahweh is my God. Verse three, for I am Yahweh your God. When you see capital L O R D in your English translations, that's translating the sacred tetragrammaton, the sacred name of God, Yahweh. I should not fear because Yahweh is my God, and that sacred name of God it encompasses all of His attributes. But it especially emphasizes his loving kindness and his covenant faithfulness. That when he makes a promise, he keeps it. In Deuteronomy 7 7, verse 9, it says, Know therefore that Yahweh your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness. I should not fear because my God is Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, the God of loving kindness, the God who always does what he says he will do. Number eight, I should not fear because the Holy One is my Savior. Verse three says, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Now why is it so important that my Savior is the Holy One? Well, very simply, because I have no righteousness of my own. And to get to heaven, you have to have righteousness. And I have none. So how can I get to perfect heaven when I am imperfect? How can I be in the holiness of heaven when I am unholy? How can I have the righteousness necessary to pass through the door? The answer is what Jesus says when he says, I am the door. I need a righteousness which is not my own because I have none. I need a righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith in order to be saved. And that's exactly what Romans 3 talks about. Remember Romans 3 says there's no one righteous, not even one. Nobody righteous. And it says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So how can a sinner who's imperfect Enter holy heaven. Here's the answer Romans 3 21. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Jesus who lived a perfect life, I did not. Jesus who never sinned, I did sin. I need his righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of God which is given to me by grace, which means I don't deserve it, through faith. When I believe the righteousness of God is Credited to me, and my sin is credited to Christ and paid for. I should not fear because my Savior is the Holy One, the one with the righteousness, the one who can give me a righteousness that is not my own. That's why Paul says in Philippians 3 I want to know Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but the righteousness of God which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Ninth, I should not fear because God ransomed Israel. You think, well, that's good for them, but how does that comfort me? Well, let me explain it. I should not fear because God ransomed Israel. Look at verses, at the last part of verse three and the last part of verse four. It says, I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place, then at the end of verse 4, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. What does that mean? I've given Egypt as your ransom? Given other people in your place? Well, What strange, seems strange at first makes sense when you study the historical context. The ancient world had its own form of international law. And one of those aspects of ancient international law was that when a nation was defeated in battle and taken captive as prisoners of war, a ransom had to be paid in order to free them from captivity. Wars were very expensive and people died and so if you were captured in battle, it's not like they're just going to say, okay, and just turn you loose. No, a price had to be paid so that the families of the soldiers who were killed would, who had been killed would have some means to support themselves so that the costs would be paid. So a ransom had to be paid. That ransom could be paid in money, could be paid in land, could be paid by providing service or soldiers or military units to the victor, but a ransom had to be paid. These verses are saying that Israel is going to be delivered from the Babylonian captivity. They're going to be released from captivity. And the ransom that will be paid won't be paid by Israel. They won't have to give up their land. They won't have to give up their sons and daughters. Instead, God is going to pay that ransom with land from Egypt, Cush, and Seba. And by the way, there is sharp irony here. Because Egypt was the nation that had enslaved Israel. And now they would have to pay the price of Israel's redemption so that they would be released from Babylonian captivity. By the way, this prophecy came true. If you remember, the nation goes into Babylonian captivity, then the Medo-Persians take over the Babylonian Empire, and Cyrus releases the Israelites. Well, what did the Medo-Persian Empire gain in return? Well, Cyrus's son Cambys, annexed Egypt, Cush and Seba in fulfillment of this prophecy. Dr. Tim Dane cites another scholar saying, quote, "God had granted to the Persians beforehand, as a reward for releasing captive Israel." He gave them the country of Egypt and a portion of Ethiopia as additions to their empire. these were added in the reign of Cambyses, son of Cyrus. this historical fact should remind us once again that when scripture gives prophecy it is amazingly accurate and verifiable historically and it should remind us that God is sovereign over the history of the world sovereign over the nations and he always keeps his promises so if my God is the sovereign one who ransomed Israel I have no need to fear number 10 I should not fear because I am precious to God I should not fear because I am precious to him. Verse four, since you are precious in my sight, I will ransom you. The Old Testament describes Israel as the apple of God's eye or to put that in modern terminology, the pupil of God's eye. They are precious to him and he protects them. And since New Testament believers have been grafted in to that messianic hope, we too are precious to God. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 10 verse 30 that a sparrow doesn't even fall to the ground apart from the will of the Father, And then he says, "And the very hairs of your head are all numbered, so do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. You are precious to God. Number 11, I should not fear because I am honored by God. Verse 4, since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored. You are honored by God. And if you are honored by God, you don't have to fear being insulted by men. You don't have to fear dishonor from the creation if you have honor from the Creator. I don't need to fear the opinions of men because what God thinks of me outweighs every human opinion. So I don't care if the world degrades to the point where every single person thinks I'm a fool for believing what I believe, thinks I'm backwards for holding the morals I hold. I don't care. I don't care about the dishonor among men because I have honor from God. And if I have honor from God, who cares about dishonor from men? By grace, God has made me his child and therefore clothe me with eternal honor. Listen to what 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says to us. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. You are honored. Why are you honored? Well, Peter explains, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. I don't deserve this honor. He called me out of darkness to light and now I have a job to do and that's to proclaim his excellencies. So I'm going to proclaim his excellencies even if the world calls me a fool. I don't care because I know that God is excellent and I will proclaim it. They can laugh. They can mock. They can persecute. I don't care. I should not fear because I am honored by God. Twelfth, I should not fear because God loves me. Because God loves me. Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored, and I love you. That's why I'm going to deliver you, God says. I should not fear because God loves me. 1 John 4 18 says that perfect love casts out fear, and God loves me with a perfect love. So, what need do I have to fear? Listen to the amazing and comforting and well known words from Romans 8. Verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long, we were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. We're the flock of God and the world looks at us just as like sheep heading to the slaughter. That's how they think of us. That's the world's view. But will anything that they can bring separate us from the love of Christ? The answer is no. Verse 37, no, in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor death nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This love is so powerful, nothing that Satan can bring, nothing the world can bring, nothing that anyone or anything can bring can separate us from that love. So why should I fear? God loves me. That's all I need to know. If God is for us, who can be against us? Number 13, I should not fear because God is with me. God loves me and then in verse five, God is with me. Verse five again repeats the command, do not fear for I am with you. Who's in the boat with you? It's me, God says. That's right, preach it. I always tell you, I love the sounds of children in in a sanctuary. I always tell the the mommies, bring them in and let them preach. Let them praise, let them preach. Let them proclaim to us the future through their sweet voices. Psalm 46 verse 2 says, God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear though the earth should change though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea though its waters roar in foam though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. Why won't we fear even if the world the earth beneath our feet begins to crumble and collapse underneath us we won't fear because God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. That's why we won't fear. I will not fear because God is with me. Number 14, I should not fear because God will fulfill the end times prophecies. Verses five and six says, I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, don't hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. This is an eschatological promise about the regathering of the people and the children of Israel into Messiah's kingdom when Christ returns. They will be regathered. And this is a reminder that nothing can thwart God's plan. Nothing can keep him from fulfilling his covenant promises. Hebrews 6 says, there's something unchangeable. And that is that it's impossible for God to lie. And that he swore to Abraham and therefore he will do it. And that text says several times, this is unchangeable. Unchangeable. Unchangeable changeable. God will fulfill the end times prophecies and this gives us great comfort. Number 15, I should not fear because I am called by God's name and God will defend his name. You know when, you know throughout the history of warfare we see these great acts of valor where people will sacrifice their lives in order to keep their flag from falling into enemy's hands. The flag is the name of the country, it represents the country and there's great defense of that symbol of the country's name. Well, I am called by God's name, and he will defend me. Verse seven says, everyone who is called by my name will be part of this great regathering. Everyone. Every single one who is called by my name will be part of this great regathering. And in this verse we get a glimpse of the inclusion of the Gentiles in the blessing of the gospel. Because it's not only only Israel that's being gathered from the east and the west and from the farthest parts of the earth. It's everyone who is called by God's name. And in Acts it says the gospel is going to go out to the remotest part of the earth. And in the end times prophecies it talks about the Messiah gathering his flock Acts chapter 15 very very specifically says that this will include the Gentiles Peter gives testimony of how the Gentiles had come to faith in Christ they were saved by grace through faith this is Acts chapter 15 he says that they heard the gospel and believed that's verse 7 He says, verse eight, God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. By the way, a great summary of the gospel. Lord cleanses our hearts by faith. So they're debating this question, uh, should the Gentiles be included? And James speaks up and says, in verse 14, Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name taking from the Gentiles a people for his name with this James says the words of the prophets the Old Testament prophets agree just as it is written after these things I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. And here in Isaiah, we have one of those times it was made known from long ago and then fulfilled in the time period of the apostles. I am called by God's name. Last, I should not fear because I was created for God's glory. I should not fear because I was created for God's glory. The potter made me and made me for a purpose and he'll fulfill that purpose. He will fulfill that purpose. Verse seven says that God's gonna regather everyone who is called by his name and he says, whom I have created for my glory glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. You know, when an artist makes a masterpiece, don't they, when it needs to be transported, don't they wrap it up? Don't they box it up? Don't they protect and preserve it? God is the potter. We are the clay. He wraps us. He Protects us, he preserves us because he has created us for his glory. And until we are on display for his glory in eternity, he will keep us safe. Psalm 139 says, I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. The heart of the believer knows he was made for God's glory. And that purpose will be fulfilled. Sixteen reasons why I should not fear. Because I am redeemed because I have been called by name, because I belong to God, because God will never leave me. Temptations will not overwhelm me. God will protect me. Yahweh is my God. The Holy One is my Savior. He's the one who ransomed Israel. I am precious to Him. I'm honored by Him. He loves me. He is with me. He will fulfill the end times prophecies. He has made to me, and I am called by His name and created for His glory, and so I have no reason to fear. May the Lord use this marvelous passage to encourage you. And when I say may it encourage you, remember that to encourage is to put courage back in, to encourage you to continue on. Well, that's 95% of the message and 10% of the chapter. With just the couple minutes we have left, I want to just briefly survey the remaining three sections. We talked about the loyal love of God in verses 1 through 7. Just briefly, the eternal exclusivity of God. You'll have to read this on your own, but in verses 8 through 13, there's a courtroom scene again, and the spiritually deaf and blind are called to testify. Give testimony to your false God. And it, figuratively, this is a person who's so deaf and so blind they don't understand who the true and living God is. That's in verses 8 and 9 the false testimony of the spiritually deaf and blind. But then in verse 10, we see the true testimony of the Messiah and his disciples. And then we see the verdict of the sovereign judge in verses 10 through 13. What is the verdict given in this courtroom? It's that no God preceded Yahweh. No God will succeed Yahweh. There's no savior except Yahweh. There's no God except Yahweh. Yahweh is eternal and Yahweh is sovereign. That is the verdict of the case the eternal exclusivity of God. He alone is God, there is none like him. And then third section, the covenant faithfulness of God. In verses 14 through 21, we see that Yahweh is faithful to his covenant. He promised Israel and he keeps his promises. And so in verses 14 through 15, there's a prophecy that Babylon is gonna be defeated. The Babylonians are gonna have to flee on ships as fugitives, And that's gonna pave the way then for the rise of Cyrus, the Medo-Persian, who will give the decree to release them from Babylonian captivity. But why, why does God do this? Well, in verse 21, he says that he does this because these are people whom he formed for himself and they will declare his praise. God says he's going to bring a deliverance and this deliverance is going to be so marvelous. It's going to cause the people to stop talking about how great the Red Sea was, how great the exodus from Israel was. They're going to start talking about this future one instead. He says, look, what I'm going to do in the future is even greater than what I've already done in the past. And so in, verses, in, verse, um, in verse 18 He says, do not call to mind the former things or ponder things of the past. Behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? What I'm gonna do exceeds what I've done. And what I did already is incredible. The future will surpass surpass the past. God will be faithful to his covenant with Israel because they are his chosen people whom he formed for himself. Then the last section is the sovereign grace of God. Verses 22 through 28. And in this section we see that the rebellious people try to ignore God. They're annoyed by God. They don't honor God. They don't serve God. They rebel against God. That's what sinful men do. But then it says what God does. And yes, he justly judges the unrepentant. That's in verses 26 through 28. But verse 25 is super important because it says that despite the sinfulness of the people, God saves his elect for his own glory. Look at verse 25. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions. Now, what does he say next? He says, I'm the one who wipes out your transgressions Does he say, because you deserved it? No. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. That word, wiped out, when he wipes out our transgressions, is a Hebrew term which means to wipe clean, to wash off, to blot out, to obliterate from memory, to erase completely. In fact, it's the same word that was used in the time of the flood when God wiped every living thing off the face of the earth. Think about the point being made here. The same word was used to describe God wiping every living thing off the face of the earth during the flood, but now... God is not going to wipe away sinners. He's going to wipe away sin. And that is grace. Grace is when God wipes away or blots out sin rather than sinners. And verse 25 is describing complete and total forgiveness on the basis of grace alone. I, even I, am the one who completely erases your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. Complete and total forgiveness on the basis of grace. That is sovereign grace. It is sovereign grace which saves us not any merit of our own, so all the glory for salvation goes to him. To him be the glory forever. Well, we've seen in chapter 43 the loyal love of God, the eternal exclusivity of God, the covenant faithfulness of God and the sovereign grace of God. But I want to close by returning to verse one and just reading these marvelous words to you one more time. You have no reason to fear. But now, thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Lord, how marvelous this is. Lord, truly we have no reason to fear for you are with us and you are our God. Lord, thank you for your great and precious promises for the comfort of this text. Lord, I know that there are many who are in really deep waters of suffering right now. Lord, and all of us are striving against the currents of temptation. Lord, all of us face the fires of trials and tribulations in this fallen world. Lord, thank you for being with us. Thank you that even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil for you are with us, your rod and your staff, they comfort us. Thank you for being our good shepherd and we give you praise in Jesus' name, amen. (coughs)